what we're told in the Scripture is that for those who are in Christ, death is not random, it is not accidental, it is now not out of control. Jesus has the keys of death. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part four of A Vision of the Exalted Christ. Throughout this series, we focused on the wondrous image of the risen and exalted King, Jesus Christ, in the vision given to the Apostle John, as recorded in Revelation chapter one. But today, Tom will explore the remaining aspects of this incredible vision, the seven lampstands and the seven angels. Though these images may seem strange to you, they represent specific and impactful realities for your life today, and certainly for your future as well. Let's join our teacher and find out more on The Word Unleashed. If you have the keys to your home, what does that imply? It's yours. You have authority over it. You have ownership of it. You control it. You control everything within that home that those keys lock. The same thing is true with Christ. He's saying, I have the keys. I have complete control over, notice what he says, over death. And I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I just got to thinking this week about Jesus' control over death. And let me just, let me just encourage you. Because I think, again, we can be prone, like unbelievers, to live in some fear of death. Everybody fears the process of death. I mean, Calvin said that. We just don't fear the result. We don't have to fear the result. Why? Because our Lord is master of it. He has the keys of death. Listen to, listen to these, the ways he controls death. He has control of death's existence. He's the one who brought death into existence. He said, the soul that sins, it shall die. He said, if in the day that you eat, you will surely die. He's the one who brought death as a curse. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. He initiated it. He began it because of man's sin. In Revelation 20, verse 14, he'll be the one who ends it. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's the last enemy he will destroy. He will destroy it. He began it because of man's sin, and he will destroy it in his time. He has power over death's power. He has control, I should say, over death's power. Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 speaks of that passage that's quoted again in 1 Corinthians 15 O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? For the believer, the sting's removed. He has power over it, control over its power. And we just read Hebrews chapter 2. But did you ever think about this? Jesus has control over death's timing. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, I am he, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death. God says, I'm the one in charge of life and death. In Psalm 139, verse 16, in your book were written 
the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Listen, you're not going to die one day sooner than God has determined that you're going to die and you're not going to live one day longer than he's determined. It's written in his book. Now, I've talked about this before. That doesn't mean you should go be reckless. God factors in our foolishness. But at the same time, understand that its timing is in his hand. And I love the story in John 21. You remember after the resurrection, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, and then he goes on to describe that he's going to die. In other words, Jesus says to a a younger Peter, a lot younger Peter, you're not going to die anytime soon. You're going to live a long, full life. And when you grow old, then you're going to die. In other words, Jesus determined the timing. Of course, you've got to love Peter's response. Well, what about him? (laughs) And Jesus says, that's not your story. What if I decide he lives until I return? What is that to you? You follow me. In other words, you let me decide how long you're going to live. You let me decide when you're going to die, and you just follow me faithfully. I love the fact that our Lord controls even the timing of death. He controls the circumstances of death. He does for all men, including the wicked. This is one example. This is a pretty gruesome example, but I've often been struck by this. In the case of Ahab, 20 years before Ahab died, God said exactly how and where he would die. 1 Kings 21, 23, and 24 of Jezebel also the Lord spoke The Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. God says, I've decided what's going to happen. And by the way, read the story. It happened exactly like that. And it was a long time coming. So he decided the circumstances. And they were pretty gruesome circumstances. The same thing is true, though, of the righteous. Starting, of course, with our Lord himself. You ever thought about this? Remember, he said, no one takes my life. I what? I lay it down on myself. He was in control of the circumstances of his own death. The year of his death was determined by him. It had to be in one of two years. It had to be in the year 30 or the year 33 AD. Why? Because that was, those were the only two years in that period of time when Passover fell on Friday and the timing for the resurrection would work as it had been prophesied. So he decided the year. The day of Jesus' death was, was decided by him. It had to be on the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover. The exact hour of Jesus' death he had determined. It had to be at 3 p.m. in the afternoon when the Passover lamb was being killed just across the way in the temple because he was our Passover lamb. And so at exactly 3 o'clock, at exactly the moment he lays down his life, he was in complete control. He has the keys of death, including his own. But the same is true for the death of Jesus' saints. The next verse in John 21, the passage I was just talking about a moment ago, says this. You're going to stretch out your hands, Peter. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now Jesus said this to Peter, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Jesus is talking in about the year 30 A.D., 
about a death that isn't going to occur for 30, 35 to 37 years. And he says, it's going to be a long time. You're going to grow old. And let me tell you how it's going to happen. You're going to be crucified. Jesus was in complete control of the death of Peter and of ours. And I love this. Jesus is in complete control of death's end when it comes in resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He will end the physical death of those who are His. He will bring them, their redeemed souls, with Him, and He will reunite their redeemed souls with glorified bodies like His own glorified body. Here's the point I want you to get, folks. It's easy when you're in the middle. You personally or your family is in the middle of dealing with death, the death, your own death or the death of someone you love. It's easy to think of it as this completely sort of random, impersonal thing. It's cancer. It's whatever. You fill in the blank. What we're told in the Scripture is that for those who are in Christ... Death is not random. It is not accidental. It is now not out of control. Jesus has the keys of death. It's a personal decision by our Lord, and we can trust Him with our own and with those we love. He is in complete control, and as we saw in Psalm 23, He's with you through the process. So He controls death, but He also controls Hades. you notice it says... He has the keys, he says he has the keys of death and Hades. Hades simply means the place of the dead. It occurs in the New Testament ten times. It is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament word Sheol. In fact, the Septuagint almost always uses Hades to translate Sheol. Like Sheol, Hades has, is used in two different ways. It's used, first of all, the, the place of conscious punishment where the wicked dead go, in other words, of hell. It's used that way on several occasions. On other occasions, it's more general than that. It speaks of the state of death that both believers and unbelievers enter when life is over. The way we refer to it often is the grave. Jesus says, I have the keys. When he says that he has the keys of Hades, he means that he not only controls everything about death, he also controls and is sovereign over all that follows death. He has the keys of death and the grave. Christian, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of death, and you don't need to be afraid of what comes after it because you serve a Lord who became dead, and he is alive into the ages of the ages, and he has the keys of death and the grave. He is in complete, sovereign control. So, we've seen man's typical response as we look at the results of the vision. We've seen the Lord's gracious comfort. Let's look at our Lord's specific commission. Our Lord's specific commission in verse 19. It begins with the command to write, therefore write. The therefore probably refers back to verse 11 where he started to say this because back in verse 11, Christ commanded John to write and here he repeats that command but he expands it and he gets to not only the command to write but the content of the letter. 
Verse 19 goes on to say, here's what I want you to write, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now, I noted this for you before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but some people look at this text and see two divisions. They see the things which are, which they say describe both the vision all the way through the end of chapter 3, and the things which will take place after these things, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and running through through the end of the book. That is possible, but not likely. It's better, and I, I showed the, you this before, so I'm not going to re-argue it, but it's better to see three divisions in this text. Many commentators agree on that, and based on the parallelism of the Greek text, it's better to see three sections here. The things which you have seen describes the vision of Christ that he has just seen, beginning in chapter 1, verse 9, and running down through verse 20. Then the things which are, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and running through the end of chapter 3, where you have the, the, the description of the churches and the messages to the seven churches. And then you have the things which will take place after these things. Now, what's interesting about that, if you look at that expression, after these things, you find that it occurs at the beginning of chapter 4, in verse 1, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, notice this, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So you can see how that fits very nicely with the outline that's laid out in chapter 1, verse 19. So, he says, I want you to write. I want you to write about the vision you've just seen, the vision of me. I want you to write the things which are. I want you to write about the churches and their current state. And then I want you to write about the things which will be after these things, a vision of the future that begins in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, verse 20 brings us to the last part of the results of the vision, and that is our Lord's important clarification. Notice verse 20. As for the mystery... Now, the, the Greek word mystery here is, you've got to get English words out of your mind. I love a good mystery watching Poirot or, or some of that. That's not the idea here. The Greek word for mystery, when it's used biblically, refers to that which people would never come to know on their own and which they didn't know in the past but has now been revealed by God. That's a mystery in biblical terms. They couldn't know on their own, they didn't know before, but now God has revealed. It's often used in the New Testament for the gospel. But, but the mystery here has to do with two things John saw in his vision of Christ. Although John doesn't explain every vision, I'm sorry, every image in this vision, he made sure that John understood two of them. Why? Because they are going to factor into what he's about to say in the letters to the churches. And so it's really important for John to understand and for us to understand as well. First, John needs to understand the seven stars in my right hand. Notice verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, as I pointed out before, there's a lot of debate about the meaning of this word angels here. There are three basic views of what these seven stars are. Some say they're real angels. It's angels. It says angels. Why don't we just think it's angels? 
The chief argument for this view is that the word angel occurs 67 times starting in chapter 4, verse 1 through the end of the book. And in those 67 times, it's never used for anything but guess what? Angels. They say, well, why not here? Those who take this view argue that these angels are like guardian angels of the church, angels assigned to each church to care for it. But there's no biblical evidence for such an office. There's no biblical evidence that churches have guardian angels. In addition, each of the seven letters to the churches are addressed to the angel of a particular church. Are we saying every single church? Like our church has a guardian angel? Is that what we're saying? I'll give you another, several other arguments against this, against this shortly. Angels is one view. Second view is that these angels, and that you've got to put on your thinking cap here, but, but these angels are not really beings at all. That really the angel simply stands for the prevailing spirit of each church. The problem with this view is there is absolutely no biblical evidence anywhere for this use of the word angel. The third view is that these are humans associated with each church. You say, can the word angel, angelos, be used for humans? And the answer is yes. Matthew 11, verse 10, talking about John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my angelos, my, my angel, my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So clearly the word can be used of a human being. So, if these are humans, these seven stars, who are they? Well, there are two ideas about this. One is they are messengers sent from each of the churches to collect these, this letter from John, but they're not leaders in the church. In other words, they're, they're like errand boys, glorified errand boys. They're, they're not in leadership in any way in the church. But this option has a significant flaw because why would the letters to the churches be addressed to the messenger boys? That doesn't make any sense. To the messenger of the church and so-and-so, right? The other view, if they're humans, is that they are leaders in the churches. The lead pastor or elder in each of these churches who represent all the other elders. Just as there were among the apostles, there is often in many churches, there, is, there are elders, but there, there is an elder like myself who's the chief speaking elder. That happens in many churches. It's, it's happened throughout history. And so personally, this is where I think it lands. I don't see any other way. I don't see that they can be angels because angels are not leaders in the church. Holy angels don't sin, and therefore they don't have to repent as these angels are called to do in several of these letters. And it makes, think about this, think about the convoluted nature of this exercise. It makes no sense for Christ to send a message to John so that John can pass that message to an angel so that an angel can pass the message to the church. So the reference here, folks, is to Christ holding the key leaders or the leading elders representing all of the leaders of each church in his right hand. What is the point? Christ is the head of his church. And he exercises that headship, that leadership, through the elders, through his leaders. Now, these leaders are called stars, not because we're stars in any sense, but because we exercise leadership, and stars were used for guidance, right, and direction. And so they're used in that sense. And they are in the right hand of our Lord 
perhaps as a place of honor, the right hand's a place of honor, but more likely to illustrate control. They're in the hand, and he controls them. The other thing that he wanted us to understand was not only the seven stars, but the seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 says, as for the mystery of the seven golden lampstands, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As I mentioned to you, these were lampstands that were ordinarily used in common homes. To light rooms at night, you would place a small clay oil lamp, or if you were in a, in a, in a wealthier home, perhaps one of brass, that was pinched at one end with the wick sticking out, you would place that on a stand. And the stand held that light high and ensured that it lighted the room. The churches are called lampstands. I love that. It's a powerful picture of the role that local churches serve in their communities. Did you notice? We are a lampstand. We are not the light. Christ is the light. We are a stand on which the light of the world from which the light of the world can be seen. The lampstands were gold. I like that as well. What's, that? What's the point of that? It's to let us know their value to Christ. He values his church. There were seven because, are you ready for this? There were seven churches to whom this was written. There's probably also a symbolic idea behind this number seven. Typically, seven in Scripture, and we're going to see it often in the book of Revelation, is a number of completeness. That may be implied that, that this is, while it's seven literal churches to whom it was written, it also describes this picture's, we see the condition of all churches and the condition of these churches. Did you notice Christ's relationship to the churches? I just want you, I, I want to leave you with this, because when you think about what the next couple of chapters tell us, here's what we learn about Christ's relationship to his church, to this church, and to other faithful biblical churches. Christ stands among his churches. He's, he's with us. He's with all of his churches. Christ walks among his churches. Christ evaluates his churches. We're going to see this in the letters to the seven churches. Christ praises his churches. Many of them receive commendation from Christ. He says, I am grateful for this about you. Christ corrects his churches as he assesses problems. He protects his churches, and he preserves the individual believers who make up those churches. If you read those overcomer statements at the end of each of the seven letters, that's about individuals, not churches. The overcomer, the individuals in those churches, and this isn't all of them. I just picked out a, a few of the, of the ones that jumped out at me. Christ preserves individual believers through persecution and death. He preserves them from hell. He preserves them as, as his own forever. He preserves them for the new Jerusalem. He preserves them to reign with him forever. Christ is active in his church. All of the churches matter to him. He knows what goes on in every church. He knows what goes on in this church. And he's not just concerned about the church. He's concerned about individual believers, and he watches over and preserves and protects and corrects and confronts and conforms us to his image. Because remember, we're his bride, and he has redeemed us in order ultimately so that we would reflect his perfect holiness. Folks, you're a part of that. If you're in Christ, this is your Lord.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled, A Vision of the Exalted Christ. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, this is such a rich study. I've, I've enjoyed it myself and remembering who Christ is. We need to remember that He is the Lord of His church, that He's in control of His church, and that even in dark and difficult times like ours, like that of the first century, He is building His church. I also think we need to remember that the churches in that amazing vision are portrayed as lampstands. We are here to broadcast the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel. And I think it's important for us to remember that as the churches to which we belong, but also as individuals, that's really our mission, his ambassadors in the world, sharing the light of the gospel in a dark place. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.